What is the Establishment Clause? Well, it has something to do with not supporting religion. And there is nothing more religious except perhaps for the service in the church itself than religious education. That's how we create a future for our religion. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to take a quick look at recent oral arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court that involve a really important case on church-state relations. In fact, it could completely redraw the lines between church and state in the United States. The case is Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue. Now, we actually talked a little bit about this in the past episode, episode 106 with Holly Holman of BJC. That interview had been recorded before the case was heard, but Holly explains a little bit of the background of that case. So if you missed that, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that episode as well. The case involves a state program that offered dollar-for-dollar tax credits for tuition to private schools, initially including religious schools. And then the Montana Supreme Court struck down that program because of the religious schools being able to participate. And they particularly cited a provision in the state constitution that prohibits government funds for being used for religious purposes. We we call these no-aid clauses. They're found in about 38 state constitutions around the country. And it really goes back to some of, the, some of the conversations at the founding of the United States, often by Baptist pastors, that the government should not be funding religion. That the government should not be taking your tax dollars and then giving it to a house of worship, to a pastor. And particularly Baptists were arguing this as a minority. Their tax dollars were being taken and then given to fund other churches. Not theirs, others. And so they said, no, this isn't right. Churches, religious institutions, religious schools should self-fund, should not be funded by the government. And so that is a part of this understanding of religious liberty for all that includes a healthy separation of church and state. And so these no-aid state clauses are really built on that founding principle of the United States that Baptists and others pushed for that church and state should be separate, and that the government should not be funding religious institutions. So after the Montana Supreme Court struck down the provision, then this lawsuit event eventually worked its way through the federal system. And the argument by plaintiffs is that that no-aid clause is in violation of the U.S. Constitution. They're arguing that it violates the First Amendment. Now, before we get too far into what was actually said in the oral arguments, we do have to deal with a little bit of language issue. 
Because as you listen to the, the full audio, which we're not going to listen to everything, we're just going to listen to a, a couple of clips from the justices and the lawyers that were arguing this case on January 22nd. But as you listen to the, the full arguments or you read the transcript of the case, it almost seems like the two sides are talking about completely different provisions. It almost sounds like you're hearing one argument about one case and then one argument about a completely different case because they're not even using the same basic language to talk about the issue at hand. So the plaintiffs, those that are wanting to get rid of this clause, their attorneys consistently throughout the oral arguments refer to them as Blaine Amendments. This case asks whether the federal constitution allows the wholesale exclusion of religious schools from scholarship programs. It does not. Yet Montana's Blaine Amendment requires that exclusion. The defendants in the case, those that are, those that are protecting the clause, those are saying that the, these are not unconstitutional, that it should be allowed to remain in place, consistently use the language of no-aid clauses. The Constitution does not bar the state of Montana from enacting and applying a state constitutional provision that keeps its own state legislature out of the business of funding religious schools. The no-aid clause does not prohibit anyone's free exercise of religion. To the contrary, it protects religious freedom. This isn't just some sort of nuance or you know, technicality. This is important because words matter. And the words that are being used in the arguments are not neutral. They come with an ideology embedded in them. And so it's really important when we start to see two sides using completely different language to describe the exact same thing, that tells us that there's a, a really important area of contention not just in the language, but in the issues behind the language. So what is this language about Blaine Amendments? Where is that coming from? Because that is really the inaccurate term here. These are not equal terms that just have a, a personal preference type behind them. These are no-aid clauses that some people are calling Blaine Amendments. And it's a historically inaccurate term. So we need to really first establish that because you're going to hear this term tossed around a lot. It's already been in the media a lot. You're going to hear it a lot more when the ruling in the case comes out later this year. So in 1875, U.S. Representative James Blaine, a Republican from Maine, proposed a federal constitutional amendment to bar government aid to religious schools, right? So he was saying in the U.S. Constitution, there should be one of these no-aid clauses. Now, his amendment failed, but in the years Immediately following that attempt in 1875, there were several states that passed similar amendments into their own constitutions. And when Montana entered the Union a bit over a decade later, it adopted this constitutional clause as well. And so one of the arguments in calling it Blaine Amendments, what the plaintiffs are trying to do is they're, they're wanting to blame it all on Blaine. And then the second part of that argument that we'll get to in a moment is that and then that makes these all anti-Catholic because he is somehow anti-Catholic. But before we get to the anti-Catholic part, we already have a, his, a significant historical problem with this Blaine Amendment language. Because of the 38 states that have one of these no-aid clauses, 19 of them already had them before Blaine ever introduced his amendment to the federal constitution. So almost half of them. Almost half of them predate Blaine. And this cannot be called, cannot in any accurate sense of language, be called a Blaine Amendment. Because I, I really suspect 
that state legislators were not different in the 19th century, that they were unable to go predict the future and preemptively adopt some sort of Blaine Amendment. Really what you're seeing here is not an idea that was inspired by Representative Blaine, but rather an existing movement that was very successful across the country that then Blaine was inspired by and tried to bring to the federal constitution. Let me tell you why this becomes particularly problematic. We saw this language of Blaine Amendment in a previous Supreme Court case a couple of years ago. This was the Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia, Incorporated v. Comer. This was a case that came out of Columbia, Missouri. We covered it a lot in Word and Way, our magazine, because it really was a significant and important case. But by the time that Blaine had first proposed his amendment in December of 1875, Missouri's Constitutional Convention had already met earlier that year in May and June to write the clause that people are now calling a Blaine Amendment. Additionally, earlier Missouri constitutional clauses made similar church-state declarations, like an 1870 amendment barring support of religious schools. And even Missouri's first constitution in 1820, not 1875, 1820, included a clause declaring no one would be compelled to support a place of worship. So from the founding of the state of Missouri, we had this idea of a no-aid clause. And that's particularly important because the argument that comes about the 1875 moment with the national one is that this is in a time where there was some growing anti-Catholic bigotry. And this is true. The couple of decades leading up to Blaine's Amendment had seen massive immigration of Catholics into the United States. And there was some anti-Catholic backlash. It was really anti-immigrant backlash. We see that throughout our history. Anytime there's a a sudden wave of immigrants that come in, anti-immigrant attitudes will swell up in at least some part of the populace, and it will have a little bit of different nuance depending on who those immigrants are as to what we're upset about them, but it's really anti-immigration. And so this anti-Catholic bigotry was significant in the middle part of the 19th century in the United States. But Missouri's no-aid clause, and those in several other states, were actually adopted before the mass Catholic immigration, and cannot in any sense be tied to anti-Catholic bigotry. And that is really important. So what that means is that the conception of this idea, even if some of them were adopted during a period of anti-Catholic bigotry, that's not when the idea came to being. That these were still amendments and constitutional clauses that were inspired by an earlier era that that does not have the anti-Catholic bigotry involved in it. So this Blaine Amendment language is really significant because they're trying to peg all of these ideas to 1875 and then say, see, this is a period of anti-Catholic bigotry, instead of recognizing that this was a concept that had been happening for several decades in other states. And this is a concept, a constitutional idea that predates significant anti-Catholic bigotry in the United States. So that's the first real historical era. There's a a smaller era in this as well in Montana in that it was actually never an amendment. While some of the states adopted these no-aid clauses as amendments, Montana's cannot be called a Blaine Amendment. At at most, it could be a Blaine Clause because it's embedded in the original text of Montana's first constitution. So again, that Blaine Amendment language becomes historically inaccurate in a number of ways. But there's really a bigger issue here in that what they're trying to do is to peg not only this time frame, but then this even this person, right? 
this, oh, Blaine Amendments, what's that? Well, it was inspired by this representative, Blaine, and he was anti-Catholic. Oh, he sounds like a horrible person, because none of us know who Blaine was. By trying to peg it on one person, it makes it a little bit easier then to say, oh, wow, this just sounds like a horrible idea. I can't believe we allowed that horrible person to put these into all of our state constitutions. There's two problems with that. First of all, Representative Blaine had little to do with any of the amendments or clauses that are actually in place. He unsuccessfully attempted to amend the U.S. Constitution. He did not actually write, introduce, or vote for these clauses in 38 states. This is a mass movement that goes well beyond one person. More significantly, the, the argument that Blaine is anti-Catholic is itself historically problematic. His mother was Catholic. His sisters were Catholic. And that was because one of the traditions at the time would be that in a, a family that was of mixed religion, that the boys in the family would be raised in the religious tradition of the father, and the girls in the family would be raised in the religious tradition of the mother. And so Blaine grew up being raised a Protestant like his father, but his sisters are being raised as Catholic like his mother. And this anti-Catholic charge against Blaine then becomes highly problematic uh, to suggest that he is taking these significant moves against his own mother and sisters when the historical record does not suggest that. And so we can see ultimately though, when we back up and look at the big picture, that the idea that these no-aid clauses are anti-Catholic really falls apart when you just look at the cases that are coming to the Supreme Court. We have the 2017 case in Missouri, Trinity Lutheran. It's not a Catholic church that brought the case. It was a Lutheran church. So how in the world did this anti-Catholic clause end up hurting a Lutheran church? Or, or same in Montana, in the Espinosa case that we're talking about. These are not Catholic parents. This is not a Catholic school at the heart of the argument. It's actually a non-denominational Protestant school. And so how in the world is this non-denominational Protestant school being harmed if this is an anti-Catholic clause? And that's because when you look at the language of these no-aid clauses, they do not say you can't fund Catholic schools, you can't give government aid to Catholic churches, it says you can't give government aid, you can't fund religious schools, religious houses of worship. And so it's written in a sense to treat all religious sects, all religious groups equally. And so even if Blaine had been anti-Catholic, and even if his attempt was to prevent Catholics from getting government funding, he wrote his amendment in such a way that it also impacted the Lutherans and the non-denominational Protestants and, frankly, the Baptists and anyone else. He wrote it in a sense that the clause itself is not anti-Catholic because it does not target Catholics explicitly. It treats all religious groups the same. So we can see that this Blaine Amendment language is, frankly, historically inaccurate. It's an ideological term that attempts to sneak into the debate a number of, quote, facts that are not actually facts. And so I think it's really important to pay attention to that. It's quite a tell when the plaintiff's attorneys in this case continue to talk about 
Blaine amendments as if that is the issue at hand. So when the ruling in this case comes out later this year, it'll be out by the end of June, probably in June, pay close attention to the language people use when they talk about this case. If they consistently talk about it as some sort of Blaine Amendment, then you know that they're either not being completely accurate or that they're misinformed. Calling them Blaine Amendments, what that does is it, it shifts the attention of the debate from the issue at hand to a person, a person that we don't know, a person that can be easily demonized. By calling them no-aid clauses, that language puts the focus on the issue at hand. Should state governments aid religion? That's the question. And these clauses say no, no aid, no state funding, no government funding of religious schools, of religious houses of worship, of religious institutions. The language focuses our attention. The Blaine Amendment language focuses on some guy in the 19th century that none of us know about that can be easily demonized. And the no aid clause language focuses our attention on the issue at hand. And so you will hear me talking about these as no aid clauses because that is the accurate term. All right, so let's get into a little bit of the discussion that actually happened in oral arguments beyond just that language difference. I will note that there was at least one justice who seemed to go all in on this idea of anti-Catholic bigotry, and that was Justice Kavanaugh. There was an exchange between him and the attorney that was defending the no-aid clause. And I think it's really important because it also, again, starts to unpack some of the historical issues here. That while Montana's no-aid clause was originally adopted in their first constitution late in the 19th century, the clause that's actually present in the current constitution instead comes out of the 1970s because they had a constitutional convention and they rewrote their constitution and they had a, a debate about this particular clause and decided to, they voted to put it back in, to keep it in the constitution. And so by just talking about the 19th century actually misses why that clause is in effect today. And it's not a debate from the 19th century, it's a debate from the 1970s. And this is an argument that Adam Unikowski, who represented the Montana Department of Revenue, makes in this exchange. And I think it's really important because, again, it shows that this is a much more nuanced historical issue than those who talk about, quote, Blaine Amendments want it to be. And I just want to be clear. We're not defending religious bigotry here, okay? I think no-aid clauses have a principal justification, especially in Montana. Well, they're, they're certainly rooted in, in grotesque religious bigotry against Catholics. You agree with that? I mean, I think that in the 1880s, there was undoubtedly grotesque religious bigotry against, against Catholics. I don't think that's... That was out the, the clear motivation for this. No, not, that's not true. In 1972 Constitution, which is where this provision was enacted, I don't think there's any evidence whatsoever of any anti-religious bigotry. So unfortunately, it seems that Justice Kavanaugh is preset against these. He's, he's adopted the argument that these are inherently anti-Catholic, even though the case he is hearing does not involve Catholics. Elsewhere in the oral arguments, there was what I think one of the most significant conversations between an attorney and a couple of different justices about the nature of religion and government treatment of religion. You know, a lot of times in these church-state cases that we've seen in recent years, the oral arguments often leave me, at least, feeling quite down about the conversation, that we, we dealt with a bunch of silly hypotheticals or got off chasing rabbits and, and, and really missed the, some of the 
heart of the issues at hand. In this case, there was a significant conversation that I think was fundamentally important, not only to this case, but to a lot of these church-state cases. And it comes down to the nature of religion and government treatment of religion. This idea that religion constitutionally is different from other areas where we might find discrimination or where we might talk about someone's status, who they are as a person. That religion is treated differently and should therefore be treated differently. So this is a really important exchange. Again, it's going to involve the attorney for the Montana Department of Revenue. You're also going to hear Justice Kagan. Chief Justice Roberts will jump in there. And then eventually Justice Alito will also jump into the conversation. And finally, at the end, you're going to hear Justice Breyer. So you get four different Supreme Court justices that are jumping in on this conversation. And I think there's some really important fleshing out of what makes religion and what makes the religious freedom rights in the First Amendment so unique. Can I take you back, Mr. Unikowski, to um, the striking down the whole program? Because a number of people have suggested that that must be motivated by animus towards religion. Right. And I can think of um, many reasons why you would strike down the whole program that have nothing to do with animus toward religion. You might actually think that funding religion um, uh, imposes costs and burdens on religious um, institutions themselves. You might think that taxpayers have conscientious objections to funding religion. You might think that funding religion uh, creates divisiveness and uh, conflict within a society. And that for all those reasons, funding religious activity is not a good idea, and that you would rather level down and fund no comparable activity, whether religious or otherwise, than fund both. Now, none of those things have anything to do with animus towards religion. And I... I, I So I think that's right, and I think that's why we don't think the race analogy is apt. And I think it's useful to talk about why the no-aid clause was enacted based on the uh, convention's discussions in 1972 and why it makes sense that those justifications would result in... Why does that explain why the race analogy is inapt? I mean, the legislature may say they they build parks and pools, and they say we're funding those, but if a higher percentage of African Americans come and use the pools, then we're going to shut down the whole program. And you wouldn't defend that on saying they could have a judgment that it decreases tensions among the different races to keep them. No, you, you would just look at the facial discrimination, right, and conclude the fact that they — that wouldn't be good under your view, would it? Uh, of course. Because they're shutting down the whole no. program? Okay. No. How is that not. different than religion, which is also protected uh, uh, under, under the First Amendment? Because I don't think that race and religion are identical for all constitutional purposes, right? Like, look, if a state uh, constitution had a provision saying that, like, historically black colleges aren't entitled to any aid at all, that would obviously be facially unconstitutional. You wouldn't even need to get to these as-applied challenges at all, because I think the Equal Protection Clause embodies a judgment that race is never, ever a permissible criterion in any government decision-making at all, regardless, uh, unless strict scrutiny is satisfied, which is very, very difficult. Uh, and I don't think this rule is the same in religion. Look, later this term, this Court's about to hear a case involving exemptions of religious schools from anti-discrimination laws. That distinguishes between that, — that, that creates a sort of religious classification, but that does, that's not intrinsically unconstitutional. Was that, uh, was that your answer to Justice Kagan's question? 
No, so, well, well, then I'd go ahead. I'd like to give you the chance to do that. So the answer is, I think that if you accept that no aid clauses are not facially unconstitutional, and I think it's a very hard argument to make for all the historical reasons they've existed for such a long time, then you have to accept that it's at least permissible for a state to say, for principled reasons deeply rooted in national tradition dating back to Madison, we have a preference to not fund religious activities, not prohibit it, but not fund it. But there's a difference between saying we're not going to fund religious activities and saying we're going to discriminate based on religion. That's the point. They, the state, nobody's claiming the state has an obligation to make particular grants to religious institutions or to f- provide any funding for private education at all. The question is, can they, if there is a program that is, that's, is designed to serve certain purposes, can they discriminate in the application of the, in, in the, in the um, deciding who's going to get the benefit of it on the basis of religious affiliation? I think what, so that sounds more like the Trinity Lutheran hypothetical. I think what a state, there's, there's certain things a state can't do and certain things a state can do. What I think a state can do is say, look, we have a no-aid clause, which has existed for a very long time, and that says on its face that we prefer not to fund religious activities for good reasons I'd like to explain in just a second. Okay? Now, we're constrained by anti-discrimination principles from coercing people into abandoning their religion. So if we have these two principles, these principled, non-bigoted, and historically rooted views that we don't want to fund religious activity on the one hand, and the the First Amendment, which clearly guards against coercion and penalizing religious faith on the other, the way we're going to balance it is to do what the state court did. And I just want to say one thing about that. To do what the state court did, meaning? Yes, to invalidate the program. And I just, I mean, if you look at the reasons the no-aid clause was enacted, which I think are similar to the reasons James Madison gave, it's just hard to say that James Madison disabled future states from enacting no-aid clauses based on essentially similar arguments to the ones he made. And in 1972, what the delegates basically said was that they conceived of the no-aid clause as a mechanism of protecting religious schools from political influence. So to prevent government from using its leverage to, uh, to, to influence the content of religious education. There's like a lot of leaders of religious denominations who came forward and testified in favor of the no-aid clause for that exact reason. And I think it's very clear why that justification applies with complete force with respect to this program, right? Because it's and basically what you're saying, the difference between this and race is it's permissible to discriminate on the basis of religion. It's not permissible ever to discriminate on the basis of of race. That's what you're saying. I mean, look, it seems to me that when we talk about discrimination, we can mean two different things, all right? One way of looking at discrimination is to say that just that you can't have a rule that treats religion differently from other subjects, which is, I think, the core of petitioner's argument. And they say, look at the no-aid clause. It says religious schools are ineligible, and it imposes no comparable restriction on anyone else, and therefore that's just discrimination, and it should be wiped out of the state constitution. So if you buy that argument, then you're basically saying that, like, every no-aid clause since 1835 is unconstitutional. Even at the founding, look, all these state constitutions said things like, a tax won't be levied to build a church. That's a form of discrimination, right? Like, you can levy a tax to build a bridge, but not a church. Well, I mean, I don't know about every, every no-aid clause in the country. They'd all have to be examined separately if, in, if in fact, they're challenged. A lot of them, look, you, I'm not going to get into an argument with you about what happened in 1972, but do you really want to argue that the reason why a lot of this popped up, beginning coincidentally in the 1840s, at the time of the Irish potato famine, that had nothing to do with discrimination based on religion? 
I'm not saying that they — no, I'm not saying that at all. I think that the history in the 19th century is very complex. Like, there's a — Professor Green, who's a leading scholar on this, wrote a, a book that both parties cite, which basically says it's a complex history, and there's good reasons and there's bad reasons, and it depends on the state. And look, I, I don't see how Montana well, could — aren't you saying — are you? I mean, I don't know. Can we? Can you? Or could I say this? Yes, race is different from religion. Why? There is no establishment clause in regard to race. What is the establishment clause? Well, it has something to do with not supporting religion. And there is nothing more religious except perhaps for the service in the church itself than religious education. That's how we create a future for our religion. Now, there's some line there, and that line may be what I've just suggested, impermissible under case law of this court, or it may be permissible but unwise. So again, I find that to be a fascinating exchange, and I really am interested to see how that's going to impact the decision that ultimately comes out in the next few months. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Found an Adjective. And I hope that it's been helpful in learning more about a really important Supreme Court case that's happening right now. The decision is being made behind closed doors, and we'll be hearing about it in a few months. If you'd like to listen to the full audio of the U.S. Supreme Court case or read the transcript, you can find a link at bjconline.org to their information about the case. You can also go to the Supreme Court's website supremecourt.gov and there you can find the link to the transcript as well as the link to the full audio if that's something that you want to listen to as always you can find us at wardenway.org don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode the cooperative baptist fellowship at cbf.net if you've enjoyed this episode i hope that you will share it with your friends on facebook and head over to itunes or your your favorite podcast platform write a positive review to help more people to find the program if you'd like to give to support this program we greatly appreciate it. All you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of the magazine, if you're not a subscriber, you are missing out on even more important news and information. And you can fix that problem by hitting the subscribe button there at wordandway.org. If you have any comments or feedback about the program, please send them to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>